Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to Creedal Catholic. I'm joined across the table by Kevin Boschman. Kevin, how was your day today? Uh, I, it was good. Yeah, it was a good day. You're such a liar. You were just telling me how <laughs> a lot. Was. It was not that awful. It was just filled with work and you know secular work. So oh, yes, uh, you know, the gross secular work. The gross secular work. But well, we are not. Um, we're not of this world that we we're forced to live in it, right? Indeed, we are. We'll talk about that a little bit today. We uh, before we do though, we're going to talk about some podcast ratings. We need people to rate and review this podcast. We do. We need to know what we're doing poorly, and we also just need. We, need we just aff- need more ratings. We need affirmation. <laughs> we need people to tell us that we're doing a great job. I'm just kidding. But we do need more ratings. We do. And uh, we have looked at the number of ratings. Currently, it's, it's at 13. 13, which is a great number. Thank you so much to the 13 of you who have given us a rating. Except for the one person who gave us one star. Come on. You're still hurt by that. That predates I'm not really, me. So. Uh, as I mentioned, they were clearly trying to... They were, they were clearly reversed on the idea of the rating system. They thought one star is a first-rate podcast. And that's that's the only explanation for why someone would give one star. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it, the the only thing that's troubling really about the one star rating, right, is that they didn't leave any exactly. Reviews, so I have no idea. It's hard to improve on that. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, it's, we're not we're not demanding, you know, we're not five demanding star reviews, five stars. We don't want you to artificially inflate our numbers. No, but if you're gonna not. give us if you're gonna give us some harsh rating, tell us what we can do better. And we we will. Is it poor sound quality? Is it the timbre of Kevin's voice that just irks you? I mean, timbre of my voice. Let us know. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we do see the the listen numbers. So we're we're aware of how many people approximately are listening to the show. And let's just say the 13 reviews is not indicative of the number of people. So I know that there are. Thanks more for listening. You, I know that there are more of you out there and would love to get a rating or review from you. So please, Absolutely. if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and do that. Rate or review on Apple Podcasts. You know, Kevin, I've had an interesting experience with podcast ratings lately because Sally and I recorded a, a rosary podcast. Mm-hmm. So if you search rosary in the Apple Podcast store, you'll see something that looks kind of like the Creedal Catholic branding, but it's the rosary. And so mm-hmm. you can pray along to the rosary on that. And each rosary is about 14 minutes. And there this are, is with or without meditations. This is without meditations. Without meditations. And you can, uh, you can look at the reviews there. And some of them are pretty funny because they're, <laughs> they're diametrically opposed. So they're honest, there's, um, <laughs> I, very, very different opinions, very different opinions. I want to say that I value all of these opinions and I don't want to disparage any of the people leaving the comments, but some of them are funny. So I do want to read, uh, I do want to read a couple one is uh, the headline of this rating, two stars, by the way, is too fast. And then the content of this review is, I talk fast, very fast, but this is just too much, especially the female voice. It's almost defiantly fast, as in, look how fast I can go. <laughs> I do not get it at all. So I, what does defiantly fast mean to you? That would defy all <laughs> reasonable speed. I don't, it, I, don't, I don't know. So this defying is... Defying what? Defying physics? This is just the peril, the peril of creating any sort of digital content sure. today. You're never going to please everybody because that was a two-star review that I just read criticizing the defiant 
tempo of the mm. rosary podcast and then uh someone just gave us this five-star review on thursday and said i have been looking for just this resource i've wanted to be able to pray the rosary when i have little chunks of time throughout the day and now i have a guide i love all caps the speed of the speakers <laughs> thank you <laughs> so um you know it takes all kinds i guess sure we, we can't win them all but we would love to have a rating review from from our listeners here and uh, please go do that if you listen on apple podcasts with that, let's go ahead and, and talk about what we're going to discuss today. So, Kevin, first of all, I think it's time for a little little music. What do you think? A little, <laughs> we got the bumper. Yeah, the, the bumper inspired, no less, by you. You you called for I this inspired, last time. I did call for it. And then after you left, after we did our recording, I, I threw this little this little jingle together. So let's here we go. Encyclopedia, encyclopedia. Did you did you uh, appreciate the falsetto there? The <laughs> yeah, end? of course. Yeah, going uh, up an octave. This what, what's your first reaction to the jingle? Because I haven't actually gotten your reaction yet. You haven't gotten my maybe. Because last reaction. time we recorded it, you said we needed a jingle. <laughs> I, I, I threw that together at the end. So does the jingle stay or does the jingle go? I think it stays. It's, you know, actually, that might be a good point of feedback from our listeners. Oh, does the jingle go or does the jingle stay? Yeah. Okay. If the jingle goes, five stars. If the jingle stays, five stars. And that's how we'll know the difference. That's how we'll yeah. know the difference, exactly. <laughs> okay. So Encyclopedia returns. Yes, it does. And what's the encyclical today? Today, we are doing Space Salve. Space Salve. Who wrote Space Salve, Kevin? So this is Benedict XVI. So this is one of his, uh, well, he ended up finishing two, but he uh, started and uh, three separate encyclicals on the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. So right. we've- um, we have done one. Deus Caritas Est. Uh, God is love. And now this is the second, Space Salve, in Hope We Are Saved. The third, of course, uh, he began towards the end of his pontificate, and it was finished by uh, Pope Francis as Lumen Fide, the light of faith. But today, Space Salve. Here we are. So Space Salve. So you already mentioned it means, well, the the, the full title or the full opening words of this are Forgive my Latin pronunciation. Feel free to correct it, Kevin. Spe salvi facti sumus. How do you do? Good. Okay. Good. That means in hope we are saved. That is from the epistle from St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 24. So let me just read to you the first paragraph, and I think that will serve to tee up, tee up our discussion here. And I do want to say we also have a hard stop at 45 minutes. We're going to try to be short and concise, and we already decided... Wherever we are at 45 minutes, it's over. It's over. We're just going to just going to hit the record <laughs> button. We're going to turn it's off over. the recording. We're done. Okay. So here's the first paragraph to Space Salvi. Okay. Space Salvi facti sumus. In hope we are saved, says St. Paul to the Romans, and likewise to us. Romans 8:24. According to the Christian faith, redemption, that is salvation, is not simply a given. Redemption is offered to us in the sense that we have been given hope, trustworthy hope, by virtue of which we can face our present. The present, even if it is arduous, can be lived and accepted if it leads towards a goal, if we can be sure of this goal, and if this goal is great enough to justify the effort of our journey. Now the question immediately arises, what sort of hope could ever justify the statement that, on the basis of that hope, and simply because it exists, we are redeemed? And what sort of certainty is involved here. So with that paragraph, Benedict tees up this encyclical, which I, I have to say, Kevin, I think is my favorite encyclical so far that I've, really? ever, that I've ever read. 
Wow. I really, really like this one. Wow. It has everything. It has stories of the great saints. It has mm-hmm. quotes throughout of the great saints. Mm-hmm. It has wonderful scriptural exegesis. It throws shade at Luther. <laughs> it throws shade at Karl Marx. It rails against modern conceptions. It crushes of modernity. Progress. It crushes modernity. I mean, all of the things that I want in an encyclical, <laughs> they are here in abundance in Space Alvey. Um, what were your impressions of this? Oh, it's it, it. I agree. It's wonderful. I still think personally, Deus Cartes S is still uh, my favorite that we have we have covered so far. But you're absolutely right. I think um, Benedict does a superb job of commenting, uh, especially when just I guess to to backtrack on my comment a little bit. But these encyclicals, any encyclical is really written within a historical context. Yeah. It's not the kind of standalone document with the the kind of theological structure the backbone behind it that allows it to really stand alone because these are uh, more in a lot of ways, more pastoral than theological. Although Benedict definitely of the encyclicals that I think we've kind of read or are familiar with, he is the most theological of the writers of these encyclicals, but they are intended. It seems to be more pastoral and past that pastoral nature always carries it with um, kind of the time that it was written in. And since we are so proximate to the time that this one was written, I think there's a lot of relatability to, you know, the problems of our, our current modern uh, world structure. And, and that makes it very accessible and very interesting. I think that's a great point. And before we dive in, I do want to mention this was written or I should say delivered November 30th, 2007, the feast of St. Andrew, the apostle. Mm -hmm. So just bear that in mind. This is the, the, the end of 2007. We're about to enter Advent um, for the liturgical year. And Benedict, this is a very recent encyclical. This is 12, not even 12 years old at this point. Benedict is engaging with many of the questions that we face every day in modernity. Absolutely. So, so this is not uh, the same thing as reading Merari Vos, for example, from the 19th century or any of Leo the 13th encyclicals. Those are, those are good and should be read and we'll read some of them and talk about them on an encyclicalpedia. But this is something that was written very much for our time and in our time. And for us. And for us. To the lay faithful. Indeed. This is not a letter to brother bishops, but to the lay faithful. So this is for, for you and for me, Kevin. Um, and so I want to I want to first frame our discussion by talking about this keyword hope that then Benedict goes on to talk about through the entire length of the encyclical, and then I thought it would be a good good way to sort of start off our discussion by talking about some of these great saints that he talks about mm-hmm. in this encyclical, um, wonderful examples of people who held incredible hope in Christ Jesus, a, a hope that was in Benedict's words not just informative but performative. So let's first talk a little bit about this this word hope. He says that it's a key word in biblical faith, so much so that in several passages, I'm quoting from him here, the words faith and hope seem interchangeable. So Benedict cites uh, the, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, about the fullness of faith and linking that to the confession of our hope without wavering. Or the first letter of Peter that talks about how Christians should always be ready to give an account of their faith or their hope. Hope is basically equivalent to faith. And so they, these are very closely linked, and we we uh, already talked, or Kevin already talked about how uh, Lumen Fidei was the third encyclical of Benedict's pontificate. So hope and faith are incredibly important to understand uh, the linkage in the New Testament. But faith specifically is informative and performative. So it it tells us something about what is to come, but also the key thing is here that it enables change in our lives. It's not just something that we take in intellectually, but it's something that actually takes root in us. 
It has real substance in us. It's not just a, an interior disposition. It's something that has real substance, and we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes. Um, and it enables real change and real sanctification. So this is, uh, I want to read a, a passage here, and then we'll talk. Uh, I'm going to pitch it to Kevin to talk about a wonderful saint. But Benedict says, here we see in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, 4, uh, 4, as a distinguishing mark of Christians, the fact that they have a future. It is not that they know the details of what awaits them, but they know in general terms that the life, their life will not end in emptiness. So the Christian has this knowledge. It is not complete knowledge. It's not even specific knowledge about what awaits them, but it is certain knowledge. They have moral certainty that what awaits them is salvation and eternal salvation. And that knowledge gives root gives rise to changes in their life, and that makes the faith performative and not just informative. And so we see this in the lives of the saints, one of whom is Josephine Bakita, who's talked about in the very beginning of this encyclical. Yep, so Josephine Bakita, so she was canonized, uh, one of the many saints canonized by Pope John Paul II. I think uh, John Paul II, more than almost any other pope, kind of recognized the power that uh, saints had as examples for us. And, Definitely. And as a result, he canonized and push for the canonization of uh, many individuals, one of which was Josephine Bakita. So she was born uh, somewhere in the late 19th century. Most people kind of, it seems like, estimate around 1869. She doesn't actually know. Uh, she was born in Darfur in Sudan. So uh, in Africa, Darfur, of course, unfortunately, kind of a troubled part of the world all the way up to this present day. Uh, but she was born there, and at a very young age, age nine, she was kidnapped by slave traders, uh, beaten, mistreated, sold multiple times in slave markets in Sudan. And eventually uh, she ended up working uh, for, uh, as a slave uh, for uh, the mother and wife of a general. And there, you know, continued the abuse uh, and bore scars from that abuse until she was eventually bought by, as Benedict tells us, an Italian merchant uh, who returned to Italy, uh, brought her, uh, there with him, and um, ultimately, you know, through this course of her life, she has a conversion. She has an encounter uh, with some Christians and converts to uh, Roman Catholicism, and kind of through this, then she actually becomes a religious person. So she uh, becomes a nun, uh, and she lives this life where uh, even with all this maltreatment, she has this great hope that no matter what happens to her in this life, that uh, God uh, is there with her, that Christ who uh, died on the, on the cross has lived um, sufferings that she herself has lived, that God, by that very personal experience, understands the suffering that she has gone through. And through that, she becomes this incredible example and lives this incredible example of faith and trust uh, and hope. And ultimately, uh, she would even say herself that, you know, without this hope, uh, she would never have been able to sustain um, kind of this life of abuse that she that she was living. And Benedict doesn't actually uh, mention this, but one of uh, my favorite kind of anecdotes about uh, St. Paquita is she was once asked kind of late in her life uh, what she would do if she encountered the individuals who kidnapped her and sold her into slavery in her answer. Just, I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind. Her answer was that if she met those people, she would fall on her knees and kiss their hands because if it wasn't for them, she would never have had the life and the experience that would have led her to become a Christian and to be a Catholic and 
to live the life for God that she that she did live. It's not hard to see how she is a saint. I know. That's <laughs> it's the, incredible. It's just incredible. And that is the performative faith that Benedict is talking about. Right. So our faith is first not a vain faith. It is something real. And it is something substantial that takes root in us, as we'll talk about when we talk about the 11th chapter in the letter to the Hebrews in just a moment. So it's not, it's not a vain faith, but it's also not a faith that just, that is real and yet only gives us information. It's a faith that changes our lives. It has the capacity to actually change us just as Josephine Makita was actually, was fully transformed by it. Right. And it, she was so transformed by it. And this hope that was burrowed deep in her soul was so transformative that she knew she had to share it with other people. She couldn't keep it to herself, right? So she's one of those great examples of someone who is is redeemed, has this great hope fostered in her heart, and knows uh, that as a result of that, she has to go out and and share this with others because it's performative. Mm-hmm. Um, which does not mean that it makes the faith a performance, but just that it it acts in our lives and it acts through our lives. Uh, another example that. Benedict shares in this and we could do we could do a thousand episodes on saints, <laughs> just saints. on saints yeah. whose, whose examples of faith are inspiring like these but uh, these these two stories I think are great to to share so Benedict shares this example of the Vietnamese martyr Paul Le Bautin who died in 1857 and he shares this long quote which I'm going to read here so uh, Paul Le Bautin was imprisoned in the name of Christ for his faith in Christ and subject to many tortures and trials and tribulations and ultimately killed because of his faith. And yet through that all, he wrote to, uh, to his friends from prison. He said, I Paul in chains for the name of Christ. Sounds like it's, it's a Pauline mm-hmm. epistle where he's in chains, right? With Barnabas. I Paul in chains for the name of Christ wish to relate to you the trials besetting me daily in order that you may be inflamed with love for God and join with me in his praises for his mercy is forever. The prison here is a true image of everlasting hell. To cruel tortures of every kind, shackles, iron chains, manacles, are added hatred, vengeance, calumnies, obscene speech, quarrels, evil acts, swearing, curses, as well as anguish and grief. But the God who once freed the three children from the fiery furnace is with me always. He has delivered me from these tribulations and made them sweet, for his mercy is forever." In the midst of these torments, which usually terrify others, I am, by the grace of God, full of joy and gladness, because I am not alone. Christ is with me. How am I to bear with the spectacle as each day I see emperors, mandarins, and their retinue blaspheming your holy name, O Lord, who are enthroned above the cherubim and seraphim? Behold, the pagans have trodden your cross underfoot. Where is your glory? As I see all this, I would, in the ardent love I have for you, prefer to be torn limb from limb and to die as a witness to your love. O Lord, show your power, save me, sustain me, that in my infirmity your power may be shown and may be glorified before the nations. Beloved brothers, as you hear all these things, may you give endless thanks and joy to God, from whom every good proceeds. Bless the Lord with me, for his mercy is forever. I write these things to you in order that your faith and mine may be united. In the midst of the storm, I cast my anchor towards the throne of God, the anchor that is the lively hope in my heart. End quote. That's he's writing that from prison where from he's prison, being tortured right. and where he he knows he's headed towards almost certain death. That's mm-hmm. incredible. The well, fact the fact that he's able to do that is evidence enough for me of this performative faith that Benedict talks about. Yeah, and then we'll get into it in a little more detail as we walk through this. But I think w- these two examples really bring out um, how these individuals, these Christians from these walks of life that are particularly impoverished 
uh, enslaved, imprisoned, how they are so stripped of, call it temporal hope or material hope, that they discover through that the true meaning of hope, which is this eternal eternal hope. And I think it really speaks to, uh, at least my thought on this was, it speaks to the gospel uh, where Christ is talking about the parable where it is, you know, where he, he makes a quote about it being more difficult for um, a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And it kind of struck me as when you have so much material wealth or you have so much comfort, it's difficult for you to look towards real eternal hope because you are so comforted by kind of the material hope you already have in your life. Yeah, and I, I think one of the one of the great insights of Christianity is that it is it is not it is not a faith that shuns the material world. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes accused of that, mm-hmm. and sometimes we look at the great saints of Christianity and they have shunned material wealth or riches or power for the sake of the gospel. But that's something different than different from shunning the material world because it is material. Mm-hmm. Christianity proclaims that the material world is something created by God. And so we, we embrace as Christians, we embrace things like science because it can advance and create and generate material progress. And that can be properly subordinated to faith. That can be a good thing. But what it doesn't do is to say that everything material is bad, right? We're not, we're not dualists who declare that all things material are bad and we need to liberate the soul from the body. That's not what Catholicism teaches and, and does. And he, he, Benedict addresses that idea in this as well. He actually quotes a Greek doctor of the church, Maximus the Confessor, who says that the one who loves God cannot hold on to money, but rather gives it out in God's fashion in the same manner in accordance with the measure of justice. And this whole idea is not because we should hate money, but because we need to properly subordinate money to the creator of money, the, the sustainer of money, the sustainer of the entire material world. Um, and, and this reminds me actually of another passage in the beginning of this encyclical where Benedict is talking about in the context of the ancient world, when Christianity is first starting to take root and flourish, there are people in aristocratic uh, elite circles who are coming to the saving faith in Christ. And this is at an age where myth is starting to lose its credibility. Philosophical rationalism is, is beginning, but as Benedict says, it's confined the gods within the realm of unreality. Uh, he continues, the divine was seen in various ways and cosmic forces, but a God to whom one can pray, could pray did not exist. And yet, these people are, are coming to a saving faith in Christ. And as they do so, uh, he references uh, Paul, St. Paul in Colossians chapter 2, as they do so, um, they, are, they are recognizing that Christ has put under dominion the, quote, elemental spirits of the universe, and uh, he talks about St. Gregory Nazianzen, who, who uh, in his exegesis of the visit of the Magi to Jesus, says that the Magi followed the star to find Jesus. Basically, they, they used astrology to find the source of creation. So they followed the star to Jesus. They bowed down and worshiped Jesus. And at that moment, when they adore Christ as the new king, astrology comes to an end. Why? Because it's at that moment where, when, as Gregory Nazianzen says, the stars are now moving in the orbit determined by Christ. So everything has been overturned now. Mm -hmm. The material world has been entirely subordinated to the creator of the material world. Benedict says, this scene overturns the worldview of that time, which in a different way has become fashionable once again today. 
It is not the elemental spirits of the universe, the laws of matter, which ultimately govern the world and mankind, but a personal God governs the stars. That is the universe. It is not the laws of matter and of evolution that have the final say, but reason will love a person. And if we know this person and he knows us, then truly the inexorable power of material elements no longer has the last word. We are not slaves of the universe and of its laws. We are free. Now, a couple things on this. One, he mentioned the laws of matter and of evolution. He's not saying the scientific theory of evolution is false. Right. He's not saying there are no laws of matter like gravity or the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that those do not reign supreme. Right? There is a creator and a sustainer of all of these laws and all of these natural processes and of the entire material world, and that is the proper order of things. And the Christian faith gets that order correct. The Christian right. faith puts God as the creator and sustainer at the top and everything else subordinate to him. Right, and the the whole discussion of astrology is, as you mentioned, it's the proper ordering where the stars are no longer treated as these heavenly celestial bodies that are imparting uh, some sort of external influence upon mankind. Right. So it no longer matters what the position of the stars is at some point in time if you don't believe that those stars are actually imparting something on you. So we see this kind of uh, resurgence of astrology, I think. And, and and for the most part, I think it's... You mean like today? Right. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, today, we're, I think for the most part, it's intended as playful or to um, maybe assuage some sense of boredom where people read their horoscope somewhat half-heartedly but there is actually i think a little bit of danger in that because it's this strange yearning for some sort of external structure to or external ordering that is going to impose itself upon your life and it's not rightly ordered in the sense that um, you know there is an external order there is a freedom that comes from the free will that god has given us so it's it's strange to kind of go back to a worldview where like I saw something on the, like I said, maybe it's just playful, but there's like this company that is now selling these star maps of you can yes. order them for the, the night that you first went on the date, <laughs> yes. first met the person that you or, married or, or you were born, other, right? right? Like your spouse. Yeah. Like, yeah. And as though, you know, the position of the stars in the sky somehow should bear significance for you. Right. And you know, maybe I'm, you, you just accuse me of being like, kind of a curmudgeon about it, but I just find it kind of strange. <laughs> no, I don't think that's curmudgeonly at all. I, uh, I actually read and I I'll have to find, I'm going to look this up and see if I can find it, but I think it was in the New York times or wall street journal, but it was, it, it was an article about how astrology apps are now the new like, kind of VC. Yeah, here mm -hmm. it is actually April 15th, 2019 New York times venture capital is putting its money into astrology. And it is an article about how, the astrology industry is booming and there are multiple mobile apps that are uh, coming to fruition that claim to uh, accurately forecast your horoscope or just tell you your horoscope, whatever. And uh, VCs are putting millions of dollars into this because it's a, it's becoming a booming industry. Mm -hmm. This is something that we think of as pretty outdated. Right. I mean, Gregory Nazianzen was talking about it, you know, uh, thousands of years ago to, you know, not quite. Well, it used to be basically the form of uh, kind of television for the Greeks. Yeah. Uh, you know, they would, after a meal, they would go lay up on their rooftops and look at the stars. See what the stars and, said. Yeah, exactly. It was a way of telling stories, right? Yeah. Um, it was a way of, of mapping and the, the different constellations represented different, different gods or different stories. So you'd have this verbal kind of oral story telling history that was kind of a part of that. So that's so interesting. Well, 
Benedict looks pretty prescient writing about this in 2007. Yes. The New York Times waited 12 years to figure out that astrology was, was on the rise again, but Benedict said no. <laughs> this is coming back into fashion. Um, okay, well, let's let's pivot here, Kevin, a little bit. Let's go to the letter to the Hebrews and talk about what is basically Benedict's proof text, I think, for mm-hmm. this whole encyclical. Because he's trying to get at this question of what is faith and what do we mean by faith? And as I already mentioned, he... he he describes that in several places throughout the New Testament, faith and hope seem relatively interchangeable. But he has this wonderful exegesis on the uh, 11th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. And he says, here we find a kind of definition of faith which closely links this virtue of faith, that is, with hope. Okay, so, um, and then he goes on and says that since the Reformation, there's been a dispute among exegetes over the central word of this phrase, Um, but today a way towards a common interpretation seems to be opening up once more. So let's read this real quick. Chapter 11, verse 1 of the letter to the Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Um, Benning doesn't really agree with that translation, does he? Correct. Yes, absolutely. He says, um, well, he points out that the Greek is actually, uh, Kevin corrected my pronunciation prior to recording here, Hypostasis. Hypostasis. Okay, so yeah, yeah you'll is, see is a weird, a weird uh, side effect of transliteration when you see a lot of Latin words that are hypo is the prefix. The Greek prefix is hupo. So when you have low blood on. pressure, you actually have hupo tension. Exactly. So you, should you correct because hupo hupo is underneath. Right. Greek word for underneath. So when the doctor says you have hypotension, you should say, do you mean hypotension? Right. Because otherwise, what is is he telling you? What does that mean? Okay. (laughs) So faith is the, uh, we would read hypostasis unless we're Kevin. And then we read hypostasis of things hoped for the proof of things not seen. Okay. So a brief comment on this. Actually, I'm just going to pivot. I'm just going to throw this to you, Kevin, because you can, you can give a comment on this word hypostasis. Sure. So hypostasis. uh, So we already talked about hypo, which is underneath or beneath and then stasis is um, a tough word to translate, but it's more or less like a stability. Or like or a state of being, like perhaps. equilibrium, a state of being. Okay. So if you have being versus becoming, becoming is necessarily a state of change, whereas mm-hmm. being is a state of stability. It's neither um, becoming or dissolving. So now you have this word, hypostasis, is that which very which underlies the very being of a thing, what what underlies what what makes something stable, uh, but even underneath that, it is the essence that gives something its very beingness. So it is the the sustaining power behind something. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. The sustaining force behind being. And so we kind of the closest single word we have now in the English language, I think, is substance. It's the substance of something. When you talk about the substance, you're talking about the very essence of it. What gives it its nature as something that is. Well, I think that's a good segue because Benedict goes on to say that the the fathers and all the way through the scholastics in the Middle Ages, to include Thomas Aquinas, understood this critical piece of the exegesis here, that it was hypostasis, and generally translated it into into the Latin as the as substance. So faith is the substance of things the substance, excuse me, of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. You heard my modern translation there from my Bible here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Benedict is saying, no, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. So uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is in the situated in the scholastic tradition, 
which is pretty Aristotelian, right, Kevin? Very. Um, and he says, uh, he, he explains it this way, uh, and this is in the encyclical as well. Faith is a habit, a habitus, that is a stable disposition of the spirit through which eternal life takes root in us and reason is led to consent to what it does not see. Benedict continues, the concept of substance is therefore modified, that's the hypostasis, in the sense that through faith in a tentative way, or as we might say, in embryo, and thus according to the substance, there are already present in us the things that are hoped for, the whole true life. And precisely because the thing itself is already present, this presence of what is to come also creates certainty. Okay, so that's a lot to to swallow there. What Benedict is saying, I think, is that this translation, which is is often messed up in our modern Bibles, misses the thrust of the original Greek, which mm-hmm. is that faith is the substance of things hoped for. And by substance, what it means is not that faith is some imagined thing here, not an expression of an, in, of an interior attitude, um, but rather something that is real, something that is within us. The reason why that matters is because in the former case, if we just look at it as a uh, as an assurance of things hoped for, we might think of it as an, in, an interior attitude. That makes it informative, because if it's if it's an interior attitude, it means that it's really just something that we cognitively understand, perhaps mm-hmm. emotionally understand, um, but it's not something that takes root in us and then grows to fruition in us and actually changes us. If it's substance, if it's that hypostasis, the sustaining force of being then it's something that becomes performative. So this is the informative versus performative Mm -hmm. distinction. Yeah, and if it's the substance of things hoped for, then faith is essentially that which hope is looking towards. And Benedict, his, his quote that really, I think, hits this home is he says, faith draws the future into the present. Mm, Yes. So our hope, our hope for the future is now brought into the present because it is an objective reality that we can see, that we can, uh, we have embedded within our soul. And through that, the future that we are hoping for is actually living within us. And it is our faith that allows uh, that to happen. And that's really, as you mentioned, it's kind of the crux of this. It's very early in the encyclical, but it's the crux of this encyclical where faith is what gives us what we are hoping for, and that is why we are saved in hope. I love that. And it reminds me, we've talked about Eric Vogelin before. Mm -hmm. He has this phrase that he uses uh, called imminentization of the eschaton. Exactly. And that captures this idea that Christian faith, and and Vogelin was not even writing, was Vogelin even a Christian? We've talked about this, I think, but... Yeah, hard to it's, say. It's unclear, right? I mean, it's hard he, to say. He, sure. he was certainly not confessional in the way that we we think today, um, but he was familiar with a lot of the ideas of the Christian intellectual tradition, and and particularly the Catholic one. But he had this phrase, the immunization of the eschaton, and what he referred to by that was the already not yet tension of Christian theology, that we are looking forward to and anticipating this day when the kingdom of God will be fully realized, and yet it's already here. So it's, it's not yet arrived, but it's also already here. So the, the eschaton, the end of time is here with us now imminently. It's been, it's been imminentized with us today. (laughs) And that's, I think what, what's happening here, right? That so when in Hebrews, we read the faith is the substance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. That's what it's talking about that. We, we know what's coming. We have moral certainty about that. It is coming. It will come to completion, to perfection eventually, but what it is now is also real. It's living within us and it's actively transforming us and shaping our lives. And it is performative in that sense. Right. And this goes on, uh, Benedict goes on to make 
this distinction between kind of the material uh, objects of hope versus this kind of theological or spiritual objects of hope. And it really, I think speaking to your point, it's the proper ordering of what Vogelin is getting at. So immunization of the eschaton is now typically interpreted as a kind of a bad thing. You shouldn't be right. striving for don't that. Imita- don't is, immunitize don't the, eschaton. the eschaton because you are then trying to bring the kingdom of God in a material sense down into the earth and make the world perfect, which right. is like a material thing, a material impossibility. But the way that it's properly ordered is the understanding that um, through faith, that realization of what uh, our salvation will look like right. lives within us. And that is, that is our hope. So our hope is not in material things. Our hope is in the salvation, which is coming through our faith in the future. And I, I want to use that to jump into talking about Francis Bacon and material progress because there are some important things we need to cover. Very briefly, though, before we do, Kevin, I do think we need to talk about Luther because he does <laughs> he does throw some, sh- some shade at Luther. Uh, he says to Luther in this con- conversation about hopostasis and uh, substance, he says to Luther, who was not particularly fond of the letter to the Hebrews, which is very true. Luther wanted to move it to the end of the Bible because he didn't find it very helpful. Uh, the concept of substance in the context of his view of faith meant nothing. For this reason, he, that is Luther, understood the term hopostasis or substance not in the objective sense of a reality present within us, but in the subjective sense as an expression of an interior attitude. And so naturally, he also had to understand the term argumentum as a disposition of the subject. So... For Luther, this was not about the sustaining force or substance, but this was about our attitude towards what is to come, uh, our own disposition. And uh, Benedict goes on to sort of dismantle this exegesis and point out that modern exegesis, even modern Protestant exegesis, has also sort of discounted Luther's interpretation here. But I think, I, I don't mention this only to... Uh, to point out that Luther was wrong, but I mention this because this is, I, I think, <laughs> although I that's do, not your only motivation. I, I do enjoy pointing out Luther was wrong. Um, I think this is an important point to mm-hmm. realize in the Catholic sacramental economy. Catholic theology so clearly values corporealness, you know, uh, mm-hmm. realness and substance in what we have, which is why we, uh, why we are so clear and so unmoving on the real presence for example right this is this is real stuff and it matters this is not just about our attitude um the same thing with the infused versus imputed grace distinction many of the reformers i would say most protestants today hold to an imputed soteriology that is that christ's righteousness is imputed to Those us. are some big words you just used. yeah i'm sorry so so in soteriology, the uh, i'm not yeah. familiar with that soteriology one. basically um how we are saved okay uh, gotcha. so justification sanctification that's all soteriology in the i don't want to say all protestants but in the certainly in the classical reformed mm-hmm. protestant view grace is imputed and by that i mean it is that we are declared righteous in a legal or forensic sense and that we are clothed in righteousness even if we ourselves do not become righteousness god, so righteousness kind of covers up your unrighteousness exactly god views us gotcha. as righteous because christ has clothed us mm-hmm. in his righteousness okay uh in the catholic view we hold to infused grace i think this is much more beautiful uh and and correct obviously mm-hmm. but in the infused view 
Christ's righteousness, yes, it clothes us, but it also permeates us. Mm-hmm. It's infused into us so that Christ's righteousness does not just cover us and make us look righteous to God, but Christ's righteousness actually enters into us. Cleanses us. Cleanses us. And then, what what do you know? Performative, right? It enables mm. us to be righteous. It doesn't mean that from the moment of our trust in God, we're perfect. It, But it means that uh, that this hypostasis, right, this immanentization of the eschaton, this faith, this substance is real and performative and enables our sanctification so that we can become actually righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So mm-hmm. it's it's not a, it's not workspace soteriology. It's not saying that we save ourselves. It's saying that Christ infuses us with His righteousness um, for our sanctification. Right. But with that comment, uh, I do think we need to move on because we're you know we're running short on time here. We said forty five minutes, so <laughs> we're gonna break that promise. <laughs> so let's move <laughs> along fine. here. Um, but, so Martin Luther, probably a name, a figure who is very familiar to most of our listeners, if not all. Yeah. Um, but maybe a name that is not quite as familiar is Francis Bacon, mm. a name that came up uh, that, that Benedict brings up. And if you're listening to this right now, I want to tell you that whether you realize it or not, Francis Bacon has influenced the way you think more than you could possibly know yeah. because he has influenced the modern world. Uh, he is one of the philosophers who is responsible for modernity as we know it today. I would put, you know, maybe three individuals who really, through their philosophy, shaped uh, modernity and, and the emergence of modernity. Uh, Niccolo Machiavelli mm. was writing, the Italian philosopher, a political philosopher, writing in the 16th century, and then Francis Bacon writing in the 17th century, and his contemporary. Uh, Thomas Hobbes also writing in the 17th century. Oh, I thought you were going to go with Marx. Okay, I was not. I was not going to go with that. So we 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 will talk about Marx later. But uh, Marx very interesting. But I'm talking really about the the beginning of modernity and the turn okay, gotcha. yeah. the turn to modernity in the sense of a philosophy and a worldview that is actually in a sense less philosophical and more scientific, less virtuous in the sense of looking for virtue as the the center of the liberal arts education, how should man uh, live his life and looking more in the sense of, uh, as Machiavelli would talk about doing what is necessary. Uh, And this is really where we see then through the uh, 18th century and the enlightenment, the emergence of the modern conception of of rights uh, as opposed to duties. Whereas classical philosophy looks more at man's duties. Modern philosophy looks more at man's, rights uh, as they would define them. But Francis Bacon, um, most famous probably in the sense of driving this turn away from theory to praxis, which is application. And in this sense, uh, Francis Bacon was uh, responsible for running a very serious campaign in an attempt to draw influence away from the typical theological ecclesiastical influence and trying to win influence for the secular philosophers who are emerging at the time. And the way that he essentially conspired or dreamed of doing this was by taking philosophy, stripping it of most of its kind of theological and uh, theoretical ideals and using it in the service of praxis or practice. So this is where we see no longer are we doing science necessarily for the gaining of knowledge, but more for technology. And the famous quote, um, not in this encyclical, but in uh, Novum Organum, which is one of Francis Bacon's uh, most seminal works, 
is that uh, man will take nature and place her upon the rack and torture her to yield up her secrets for the relief of man's estate. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. Sounds nice, right? <laughs> Um, but ultimately it's the idea that nature is not something we look to in order to inform our ideals of how we should act. Nature is something that is in, um, our service that we then need to experiment on and in a sense, torture in order for us to learn new uh, technologies, new things that will give us things like saran wrap and refrigerators. And actually Francis Bacon, uh, predicts some technological inventions like planes Airplanes, and submarines, yeah. uh, because they kind of. They flow logically if you think about man dominating nature. Um, and then also, you know, this flows into into Hegel and probably another one that I should have mentioned. But these kind of modern philosophers who had this idea uh, now, and you actually see it in modernity, um, kind of the way oh, absolutely, yeah. it's very materialistic. It's uh, we're constantly well, and, the advanced technology. And I think efforts at material progress are dominated by what we call the technocratic imperative that because we can do it, we should do it. Right. You know, it's just, let's, let's test the limits. Let's put, what, what was it? Put nature on the rack and torture her. Let's, yeah. let's just test the limits of our ability. For the relief here. of man's estate. Yeah. Always for the purpose of making our lives easier. Yeah. Which, you know, uh, Bennett actually talks about a little bit about there is good in that and reducing suffering is right. a good thing to the extent that, that you can do it and that you do it within the realm of understanding that you're never going to completely eliminate suffering. Uh, well, especially modern, because he distinguishes between physical and mental or spiritual suffering. Sure. And he says, you know, a lot of what we have as far as technology can alleviate the former, but mm -hmm. it really struggles to alleviate the latter. And in some places, some cases even exacerbates. Exactly. It, it makes it worse. But so th this whole idea then, um, I think what it really brings out is this modern idea of the progress progression of science, which actually some uh, very interesting work has been done that um, kind of contest that, but ultimately what we see tied up, especially when we think of progressivism today is that this idea, and it's kind of a non sequitur, but this idea that our material progress, which is very evident, especially if you look at the last hundred years and we have marvels of technology that are just absolutely incredible, but it's this idea, I think false idea that our material progress implies a moral progress. Right. And Benedict kind of, attempts to, and, and I think does it successfully, takes that head on and says material progress is not linked to moral progress. And in fact, it never can be because moral progress is ultimately subject to free will, human free will, right. that even if you were to design what you might call a quote unquote, perfect society, perfect structure, perfect political structure that only allows man to tend towards what might be considered morally good. It's still not morally good because there's no free will and any moral action implies or it necessarily contains with it a free choice. So, well, and this, this is what he talks about is Karl Marx's key mm -hmm, error. Exactly. Because Marx obviously was like, you know, the uh, Marx thought he diagnosed the sources of ills in the world and thought that if we could you know eliminate those sources uh, namely power imbalances through uh, economic forces that we'd be good to go mm -hmm. and benedict says uh okay you know good good thrust <laughs> good effort mm -hmm. i admire the effort he doesn't actually say he admires the effort uh <laughs> but but he says that Marx's key error here he admires the precision and the thought yes I think for is what sure he said. uh <laughs> Marx's key error here is as, as I quote from Benedict, he forgot that freedom always remains also freedom for evil. Yep. So I actually, before that, he says mm -hmm. he forgot man and he forgot man's freedom. He forgot mm -hmm. that freedom always remains also freedom for evil. He thought that once the economy had been put right, everything would automatically be put right. 
His real error is materialism. Man, in fact, is not merely the product of economic conditions, and it is not possible to redeem him purely from the outside by creating a favorable economic environment. And yet we still try to. We do. We are so, our society is so Marxist, even though it's people, especially in our country, in the United States, rail against communism. We still, while rejecting communism, for the most part, when you look at our economy, when you look at the way, uh, what our societal values are, we are at the core, if not communist, we still seem to be Marxist in our view that economics is the fundamental driving force. When we talk, you know, the stock market is so important. Well, we talked about this in the context there. of George Weigel, right? We did. Absolutely. That, that economic success is not the the best or even uh, the primary means of measuring man's health, right? right? That's that's not what it's about. But our entire framework, our entire uh, cognitive heuristic in a way is set up on, you know, what's my salary? How's my IRA doing for retirement? Do I have the health insurance that I need, et cetera? We forget about the more fundamental things. And as we wrap up here, I mean, there, there are so many more things I think we could talk about oh, here, absolutely. Kevin. It's really hard to to pick and choose what to include and what, what not to include. But I want to re- read a few things from Benedict here. This is section 26 of the encyclical. He's coming through this section where he's talking about uh, Francis Bacon and his his philosophy of science and how mm-hmm. that has fed our material conceptions, our modern conceptions of material progress and how we think those material progress ideas are linked to human progress, um, but they're human moral progress, but they're not because of our freedom. It's uh, Benedict says, it is not science that redeems man. Man is redeemed by love. Mm. This applies even in terms of this present world. When someone has the experience of a great love in his life, this is a moment of redemption, which gives a new meaning to his life. Keep in mind, just a brief editorial here. Keep in mind, this is following on the heels of Deus Caritas S, the encyclical. So there's a very good reason why Benedict started with the encyclical on love and how God is love. He continues, but soon he, that is man, will also realize that the love bestowed upon him cannot by itself resolve the question of his life. It is a love that remains fragile. It can be destroyed by death. So this is this is human love, right? When someone mm-hmm. someone falls in love with another human. Benedict continues, the human being needs unconditional love. He needs the certainty which makes him say, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. Benedict continues, if this absolute love exists with its absolute certainty, then, only then, is man redeemed, whatever should happen to him in his particular circumstances. This is what it means to say, Jesus Christ has redeemed us. Through him we have become certain of God, a God who was not a remote first cause of the world, because his only begotten Son has become man, and of him everyone can say, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. That's really powerful. Yeah, that's that's the thrust of what Benedict is talking about with hope here. Um, There's so much more that we could cover. Like we said, Kevin, um, he has a great discourse on purgatory here. He talks about Mm -hmm. eternal life and uh, maybe helps us sort of helps us conceptualize eternal life, but also realize that it's completely inaccessible to our Mm -hmm. not completely, mostly inaccessible to our reason. Um, He talks about whether or not Christian hope is individualistic. And I think he tries to recover a lot of ideas of salvation from the individualistic turn that unfortunately has infected the church from modernity as well. Um, so there's a lot more here. We don't have time to go into it all, no. but I think in a practical sense for our listeners, 
what what's the takeaway for this encyclical? First of all, go read it yourself. It is pretty accessible. <laughs> it is. Uh, I, I recommend it. It's not too long either. I think um, the PDF version that we both read is, what, 30 pages 30 long? pages, um, yeah. So really not bad. You can just read it, you know, a few pages at a time, read it over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, but go ahead and, and read it. I would definitely recommend. Um, second, as far as big takeaways from this encyclical, I think what Benedict wants us to do is place our full faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He says at multiple points in this encyclical that man does not save himself. Man is entirely dependent on God to save him. And he talks so much about you know, this, and this idea of hope again, about material and we, we all have material hopes. We hope for success in our jobs. We hope for success and health for our families. We hope for frankly, some degree of material prosperity so that we can, whether it's give to others or, or be comforted. But ultimately he says that all of those, uh, kind of forms of hope, uh, fall short because they are tied to our material being, which is necessarily temporal. And uh, later in the encyclical, he, I think was his great quote that he has in there is, it becomes clear that only something infinite will suffice for him, him being man. And speaking to the quotes that you just brought out, the only thing that is infinite that is going to transcend all time and space is God. It is uh, the love of Christ. And that is where that hope, that is this, again, the central theme that in hope we are saved it is this infinite hope that is the only, um, the only, the hope that they takes us beyond our material being and brings us up into the image of God that we were created in. And I think that anyone who's honest with himself or herself will recognize that we do desire something more than material. Sure. Right. This is empirically proven by everyone who's ever bought anything that it might satisfy you for a minute or an hour or a day, a week, maybe even a year, but it won't satisfy your deepest desires for all eternity. And this empirically verifiable fact is a corollary of the other fact that there is something that we desire that cannot be fully achieved in this world. This is uh, philosophically known as the argument for God's existence from desire or innate desire that we long for something that cannot be fulfilled in this world. And that is philosophically speaking, a rational argument for the existence of something that meets that desire that transcends Mm -hmm. this world fully. And that's what the Christian has hope for. And that's the, the hope that is defined in the 11th chapter of Hebrews that Pope Benedict talks about. And the good news for the Catholic Christian is that we believe this hope is not just informative, not just something that we vainly cling to, or maybe not even vainly, not something that we that we cling to and that we just wait for the realization of, but that, but that we experience the realization of now. Yeah. We heard those examples from St. Paquita uh, and St. Um, darn, I'm forgetting the, the name because I probably butchered the pronunciation once more, but uh, here it is, Li Bao Tin, right? St. Li Bao Tin um, from prison. These wonderful saints who mm-hmm. have had the hope that was performative in them and enabled them to recognize that even in the midst of getting 144 lashes from Mm -hmm. slave owners or being tortured in prison for the sake of the gospel, even in the midst of that being fully alive in Christ and inflamed with love for God in the words of um, uh, St. Lee Bautin. So this is an amazing thing to remember. This is our heritage as Catholic Christians, and this is what we should cling to. So as you go about your week, cling to this hope that there is a God who saves, that this God has come incarnate into the world, entered into our fallen humanity, partaken of our suffering, died for us and redeemed us and offers us this unconditional love 
that turns into hope in us and that hope transforms us. And if you want just a foretaste of that eternal, infinite hope, speaking to one of my favorite themes, go to confession. <laughs> I thought you were going to say go to mass. You can do that do too. Do that as well. Do that yeah. to go to confession first and then stay for a mass. Oh, there we go. I like it. <laughs> this is becoming a theme in our episode. Partake in the sacraments because the these sacraments. are the, these are, these are what the, what Christ offers us through the church to participate in the grace that he offers. It is there. It is free. It is unconditional. So go partake in the sacraments. Amen. Anything else, Kevin? Is that it? That's it. We totally busted our time. Very sorry to our listeners who were hoping that we'd actually stay under 45 minutes for an encyclopedia, but I guess now we know we can't really do it. There's just so much here to talk <laughs> we, about. We only got through like half of I this, know. dude. There's so much more. We could have we could have easily done three or four episodes on this encyclical alone. For that reason, I do encourage our listeners, go check it out. Go look up Spay Salvi by Benedict the Sixteenth, and let us know what you think. And when you do that, you can email us creedalcatholic at vernacularpodcast.com. And as we said in the beginning, go give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week and God bless you. Peace. Peace.